Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. Our New Testament reading today comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter, beginning with verse number 25. Listen once again to the Word of God. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. For those of you who read my letter and this week's weekly, you know that I made a request of you uh, this morning, and I'm wondering how many of you have completed uh, what we might describe as your homework. Some people did it. <laughs> oh, wow, I'm so happy. I, I can just say amen and go home now and be as happy as I could be. Uh, okay, uh, Kathy, what did you come up with? So the question was, and the, and, and the newsletter is, uh, what text from Scripture confuses you, agitates you, discombobulates you, or just leaves you scratching your head and asking, do what? Uh, and Kathy is saying that the one when Jesus says, whatever we ask, God will give us. Really? Who else raised their hand just now? Oh, now no one wants to raise their hand. Uh, Ruth. The parable of the talents. Talents are buried, the master comes back. It's a beautiful story in some ways, but it's rather harsh in others. Thank you. Uh, Julian. Thank you. Julian went beyond the assignment this morning. <laughs> Thank you, and he's quoting from another uh, book, and the author is asking, basically, why is there suffering, and if we believe that Jesus suffers with us, really? Anyone else? Where? <laughs> really? For many, many years, I've had a love affair with the Bible. John and I both have sat at the feet of some of the, literally, some of the world's greatest biblical scholars. And yet, the more I read, 
the more I study, the less I feel like I know. I have noticed for many, many years that many, many adults do not want to come to a church Bible study because they do not want anyone else to know how little they understand Scripture. I have found that to be increasingly true, which is rather sad because that's what most people feel when they go to a Bible study. The truth is most people in a Bible study go, I don't get it, and I really want others to know how little I understand. So if you do feel that way, you are in the majority. There's much about Scripture that confuses me. For example, what do we do with a passage like Psalm 137? Happy are those who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Really? Or Leviticus 24, 16. One who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. Or Timothy 2.12. Some of you love this passage, I know. Uh, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. Paul said it, I didn't say it. Or Deuteronomy 21. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father and mother, who does not heed them when they discipline him, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town at the gate of that place. They shall say to the elders of his town, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town shall stone him to death. This is the word of the Lord? Sometimes the Bible seems so confusing, even archaic, that we are tempted to avoid it, ignore it, or treat it simply as a relic from the past. The problem with, with this, of course, is that Jesus himself has a very high regard for Scripture. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, how did he respond? He quoted scripture, primarily Deuteronomy. One does not live by bread alone. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. When he preached in his hometown of Nazareth, he did what first? He read from the prophet Isaiah. In this morning's scripture passage, a, a lawyer, a, a scribe, someone who studied scripture over and over again, tried to trick Jesus. Uh, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And did you notice what Jesus did? He said, what does scripture tell you to do? He, he didn't say, well, I've been out in the desert reflecting on this important question, and here's what I have come up with. No, he pointed to the foundation of their faith, scripture. Jesus takes very, scripture very, very seriously, and we Presbyterians also take it very, very seriously. When we ordain deacons and pastors and elders in the Presbyterian Church, we ask a series of questions, and one of them goes like this. Do you accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be by the Holy Spirit, the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ and the Church Universal and God's Word to you? Did you hear that? The unique and authoritative witness. 
I was once interviewing with a church, and one of the members of that PNC said, oh, Patrick talked to us about the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. And I said, that's not the language I use. I use our traditional language that Scripture is the unique and authoritative witness to who God is or what God is about in the world. Authoritative. The theologian Daniel Mealori says that authoritative in this context means to give life, authoring life. Christians describe the Bible as a canon, C-A-N-O-N. <laughs> One of my professors commented that uh, two N's, C-A-N-N-O-N, is a boom-boom. Uh, that's not what we're talking about, C-A-N-O-N. And C-A-N-O-N is a Greek word for ruler or measuring stick. In the church, we use scripture to measure our beliefs. We use scripture to measure our faithfulness. And we have two kinds of elders in the Presbyterian church, teaching elders and ruling elders. The ruling elders are elected from the congregation. Ruling elder does not mean ruling over the congregation. It means discerning and measuring all the activity of our church in light of what Scripture teaches us to believe, say, and do. That's what it means to be a ruling elder. As a matter of fact, we Presbyterians believe that Scripture is so important, we have a rich confessional heritage that guides us in our interpretation of Scripture. And I want to share some of these fundamental principles with you this morning. First, we believe that Scripture interprets Scripture. This means that when we encounter a difficult or confusing passage, we compare it to other passages in the Bible. We interpret individual verses in light of the overall message of the Bible. The temptation, you know this to be true, our temptation in reading scripture is just to find, hunt, pick, cherry pick those particular verses that support our own particular opinion or belief. But scripture can be abused. We know this. Scripture has been used to justify slavery, murder, genocide, and the subordination of women. Liz was a member of my first congregation, and she and I had many, many conversations about Scripture. She fervently believed that a woman should never serve as an elder or a minister. And she would quote the passage I quoted for you just a moment ago. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. It's clear, Patrick, there it is. And I say, I hear that. Uh, but can we talk about John 4 for a moment? The woman experiences the gospel in Jesus Christ, and then she goes out and proclaims the good news to those in her community. Uh, she was preaching. Uh, I would ask her, can we talk about Ephesians 3.28 that says that in Jesus Christ, there is no male or female? Can we talk about how Paul in another place says that Christ is breaking down the dividing walls of hostility? Uh, can we talk about how in Acts that the Spirit flows upon both women and men? Can we talk about how Romans, in Romans, Paul sends greetings to Phoebe, a, a woman? By the way, one of the interesting things about this, uh, she had grown up a a good Baptist, and she knew Scripture fairly well. 
I would finish the service, greet people at the door of this tiny little church in South Carolina, and then rush off to my other congregation, and then she would get a lectern and stand before the congregation, and about 20 of them would gather for Sunday school. And she would stand there and teach. Well, they called it teaching, but it really looked like preaching to me. I mean, she held forth in that tiny church, and she, she told them and interpreted the meaning of Scripture. And I don't think my good friend Liz ever, ever saw the irony in that position, that on the one hand, she says, oh, women should never preach or teach, but there she was doing it each and every week. Yes. Yes. Some passages of Scripture do assume the norm of slavery. Some passage, passages of scripture do insist upon the subordination of women. Some passages of scripture, as we just read, talks about putting to death someone who is not faithful. But any of these passages, do they fit the trajectory of scripture, the movement of scripture from Exodus to the resurrection? No, not at all. Scripture interprets scripture. That's the first, and maybe in some ways, uh, the more important guideline. The second one emphasizes that all of scripture should be read in light of what God has done and is doing in Jesus. That is, we can't interpret scripture faithfully if we just cut Jesus out of it. Uh, the Scots Confession, for example, says, when controversy arises about the right understanding of any passage or sentence of scripture, or for the reformation of any abuse with the church of God, we ought not to ask what men have said or done before us, ask what Christ Jesus himself did and commanded. As Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ provides us with the clearest image of God that is possible for us to behold. His love for us, his willingness to die on our behalf, his faithfulness even in the midst of pain and suffering and death and sin, this is who God is. We read and interpret all of scripture with this in mind. Can anyone really imagine Jesus saying, oh sure, let's go ahead and stone this rebellious youth? No. Um, and for the youth in our choir, uh, this is really good news. <laughs> I, I think this is great. The third guideline is, uh, is called the, um, the rule of love. What is the greatest commandment? You know it. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and a second is like it, to love as yourself. These Two commandments I like to think of as the, the traps, the railroad tracks of our faith that keeps us going in the right direction, love of God and love of neighbor. As Presbyterians, we believe that God's love governs our interpretation of Scripture. Any reading of the Bible, then, any reading characterized by hate, or indifference, or a lack of respect for others is not a faithful reading. My mentor, the theologian Shirley Guthrie, 
has observed that when it comes to interpreting the Bible, it is not, and he says, possible to love people who are different from us without getting to know them, listening to and learning from them, and willing only their good, whether or not we agree with what they believe, say, or do. Early in my ministry in Charlotte, North Carolina, a five-year-old made the evening news. A five-year-old, because he was standing on a street corner, supported by his father, yelling, screaming, shouting at the top of his voice, condemning other people to hell. He was five years old. What? Any interpretation of Scripture, any teaching of Scripture to a child that does not rest on the foundation of love is a faulty, perverse interpretation of Scripture. I felt for that child. What kind of environment did he grow up in? No. The next principle. Presbyterians focus on the plain sense of the text. We encounter some of this in our study of Revelation this summer. The plain sense of the text. And, and be very careful about bringing all of our imaginative allusions to it. The plain sense of the text. That we avoid fanciful associations and allegories. Remember the story in John, uh, Mark 5? The man is possessed by all these demons. They call themselves legion. And Jesus casts out the spirits. And they rush into this herd of pigs. And what do these little piggies do? They rush down the mountain and jump into the lake and are drowned. And I suspect there are some among us this morning who would read this passage and say, what Jesus is really talking about with these piggies are the Padres. That the Padres are the evil spirit. And that the Padres should go down and jump into the lake. You see how ridiculous that is? Well, okay, for some of you it's not so ridiculous because you're really strong Mets fans, but bro, trust me, that is a very ridiculous interpretation of Scripture. We have to be careful about our fanciful illusions when we're reading Scripture. Another guideline, we have respect for the literary forms of the Bible as well as their socio-historical context. You know, the Bible's not a book. The Bible is a library that was written and put together over a thousand years is filled with various types of literature. Uh, do you read a Harry Potter novel the same way you read a stock report? Mm, no. Do you read a romance novel the same way you read a story about the war and the Ukraine? No. Do you read Beetle Bailey the same way you would read the worship service on Sunday morning? No. And so these different forms of literature shape and form the way we read Scripture. Take the Psalms, for example. The Psalms are poetry, and poetry is evocative. It captures and expresses our deepest longings and feelings. So imagine just for a moment. 
Imagine that five years ago, the Chinese conquered New York City. And Chinese tanks are out there, and on every corner, there's a Chinese soldier. And your spouse was killed by these soldiers. And imagine that some of your children are starving to death because of what they have done to us. How do you feel? Are you enraged? Do you want vengeance? Do you want to strike out against those who claim the life of your family? Of course you do. Something like that is what's going on when we read a psalm like 137. Happy shall they be who take your young ones and dash them against rocks. They had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Their lives had been turned upside down. Their loved ones had been tortured and murdered. Uh, vast portions of, of their population had been forcibly deported back to the Tigris Euphrates rivers. They are filled with despair and vengeance. And scripture invites them to give voice to this anguish and rage and pain. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against rocks. Well, of course they would pray that. Their little ones have been murdered. This is not telling us to go out and abuse children. It is a way, an invitation for us to engage God with the deepest parts of who we really are. There are a couple of other guidelines we, we could mention this morning, but uh, uh, scripture, it takes earnest study. You can't just open up the book and say, oh, this is what this means. Uh, not really. Uh, scripture should be read in terms of its historical setting, uh, yes. And, the most important one of all is we should always read and interpret Scripture under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Understanding that it is only with the Spirit, when we are reading Scripture together with a variety of perspectives, that we can really hear what God is trying to say to us. And the last one I would mention is something that those of you who have read John Calvin, and I know some of you have. Calvin was fond of saying this. He, he, he said that Scripture is not something that we look at. Scripture is something that we look through. Scripture, he said, is like a pair of eyeglasses. He used the word spectacles. And so we put Scripture on so that we can not read Scripture, but read the world and our lives through Scripture. Scripture is the interpretive lens. The theologian Garrett Green, about 30 years ago, wrote this incredibly important book in theological studies called Imagining God. And he said that the Imagination is the human capacity to discern patterns, to make connections, the imagination. I would submit to you that what is most needed today in terms of Bible study are, are two things. One, more and more people coming together to read scripture in community and the development and nurture of our imagination. That is, that capacity to make connections. Uh, do any of you remember the movie Hook? It's an old movie now. Hook with Robin Williams as a grown-up Peter Pan. In one scene, this adult Peter is with the Lost Boys, and they're sitting around this huge table, and the Lost Boys are enjoying a scrumptious meal, a feast, and they're eating and eating, and uh, Peter Pan looks around, and he says, what, I, I, what, what food? He doesn't see anything. And then suddenly, slowly, the food begins to appear on the table. And the lost boys yell out, you're doing it! He says, doing what? 
And they yell out together, using your imagination. That's the challenge for us in reading scripture in the 21st century. How do we engage our disciplined imagination to make connections, not to bring text out of context to affirm our position, but to make connections between this verse and that verse and between scripture and our lives. That requires imagination, that requires music, that requires art. So, so that, so that, if we are reading then the opening chapters of Genesis about the creation, and we see how the man and the woman were both created together as equals, that they complement one another, that there is an egalitarian relationship. How does that, how does that then challenge those movements and forces in our world that would seek to even today put women in a subordinate position? The scripture says side by side, why do we have all these forces, as we have throughout history, wanting to put men here and women there? In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan takes care of a beaten man, and then he pays for this man's lodging and medical treatment. If we read that text with a disciplined imagination, how might this text be calling us to be a neighbor to those in our community in need of medical care. Paul says that Christ is breaking down the dividing walls of hostility, the dividing walls of hostility. How then are we as God's church in this time and place called to engage, confront, challenge, and love those who even now are trying to erect dividing walls of hostility between them and us, black and white? What do we do about that? So some of you completed your homework, and I appreciate that. And I am not going to ask the rest of you to turn it in this morning. I just don't have time to be grading it this week. Otherwise, if I had more time, I would be glad to grade it. But what I do ask you is that you give some thought in the next few days of a passage of scripture that puzzles you, aggravates you, confuses you, and just leaves you scratching your head going, do what? And if you would, identify that passage and send it to me. I would love to hear what you have to say. I, I am beginning to plan out uh, some sermons for January. And perhaps, perhaps that passage that you have might appear in a sermon then. Amen.